I'm going to start by fulfilling a basic principle of the natural laws regards hydration. Natural law jokes don't go very far. Um, and that might indeed be, in some sense, a way to start. Natural law, we might say, has come upon us on hard times these days. Why is that so? Let's consider a few of the things that at least traditionally have been held forth as being uh, dealt with by the natural law, but seem still highly contested. Um, as I was preparing this work, of course, recent explosions politically in the United States regarding abortion certainly come to mind. Historically, it would be said that it is simply obvious that direct killing of the innocent is not permissible in any moral structure. And yet we see not only people who aren't sure whether there mightn't be exceptions, but people who are loudly asserting that the destruction of life in the womb just is important for justice, and that unless it be permitted, one will not have a just society. We have in both Europe and in North America, and to some extent in Latin America as well, seen also questions about the nature of marriage lately. It was taken as obvious to anyone with reason that the purpose of marriage was the kind of union that could be reproductive and to rear children. And yet now it is taken by many to be perfectly obvious that this is not the case. And there doesn't seem to be any easy way to have these groups be in dialogue. Finally, just so it might not seem that I am only on one side of a political fence, the notion of a just wage and that the economy exists precisely for the flourishing of persons and families, and therefore any economic order that leads to a growing poverty among persons and families is not simply bad economics, but contrary to nature, is also something that certainly in our day of global capitalism is highly contested, and people simply aren't sure that that ought to be the case. So much as they might want people to be able to flourish, they don't think that's necessarily what defines a good economy. So if questions like the notion of, of the act of abortion, rather, or so-called same-sex marriage, or the just wage, are themselves supposed to be, on the one hand, things knowable by natural reason and parts of the natural law, and it is the case that at least presumptively intelligent people don't see that they are that these claims are true. That is, one is not saying here that there are simply stupid people who don't see it, but intelligent, functioning members of society hold radically different views. And while we seem incapable of finding a way to come to anything close to an agreement, one wonders if the notions of natural law might not, in fact, be confused. Some scholars have raised the question, for instance, as to whether or not the natural law is simply theology in disguise. Is it, in fact, a way to pretend that one is talking about reason while, in fact, trying to import in civil and secular society precepts that are only knowable by virtue of revelation. We'll probably hear some more about that later. Um, or some people who might regard the natural law as real and knowable by, by reason might nonetheless assert that we can only be certain, certain about its contents, its more particular contents at least, 
in light of Christian revelation for various reasons, some of which I will be touching on. On the other hand, if it is something that is supposed to be arrived at by natural reason, if the principles of natural law, at least the most common ones, are supposed to be known to all, then why has it not succeeded in showing its truth? Why have we had such a hard time in convincing people about the principles of natural law? While it looks at first glance that this shouldn't be hard, at least for serious people who work on the issue all the time, ethicists or politicians. To begin to answer this question, I think I want to say, and here I'm, I'm parallel with, but we're not going to have time to get in detail with the people have questions about it later. I'm happy to address uh, the thought of Alastair McIntyre, his more recent thought about uh, the, how natural law and the natural law tradition relates to how to deal with seemingly incommensurable uh, moral theories and the role of dialogue, which he thinks that uh, mutual ethical discernment helps to show the truth of natural law, but in a sort of indirect way. I'll leave that as a side for a moment. But in a similar vein, uh, what I want to do here is suggest that natural law, at least as understood by St. Thomas, already anticipates the kinds of problems that we are going to find in society, the problems of pinning down and getting people to see the precepts that on the one hand are knowable by reason, but on the other hand might, with human beings as they are, not be able to be known as such easily or readily. So what do we mean then for St. Thomas by natural law? And here I want to rehearse for you uh, some of what is the principle of natural law. For those of you who know these principles, um, you can catch up on your social media. No, don't do that. And the rest of you, um, I hope this helps us frame what we're talking about for this whole weekend, at least as regards natural, not biblical law. What does Thomas think we mean by natural law? We first have to know what Thomas thinks we mean by law, right? So we know what we're talking about here. Thomas tells us in his definition, he has two definitions one fuller, one shorter. He says that law is nothing other than a certain ordination of reason for the common good promulgated by him who has care of the community. That's the fuller definition, which I'll unpack in a moment. Or a shorter definition, it's a certain dictative practical reason in the prince who governs some complete community. So law is nothing other than a certain ordination of reason. Law, Thomas tells us, is a rule and a measure and it's a measure of acts. And if those acts are human acts, then the rule and measure of human acts is precisely reason to which, says St. Thomas, it belongs to order things to an end. And therefore, law is an ordination of reason, principally about inducing people to acts or drawing them back from acting. And that's the second definition helps us by pointing out of practical reason. So it's about doing or not doing things. Since the ultimate end, if if the if, if uh, law is about a rule and measure of acts, and acts are about ordering to an end, since the ultimate end of human life is happiness, felicitas or beatitudo in his account of the law, and since human beings are parts of a larger community, and since every part is ordered to the whole, then it follows that law is principally concerned not with ordering individuals, but ordering individuals in light of a common happiness, which he will then later clarify as the common good. Hence, a certain ordination of reason 
ad bonum comune, for the common good. Now, since it touches the whole, Thomas thinks that it belongs in principle to the whole multitude of persons, sort of a radically democratic moment, but we won't get into Aquinas' politics for now. Or, he says, at least it falls upon those who are charged with care of the whole to establish law. And that's where he says, by him who has care of the community. And finally, law to be law has to be applied to those who are ruled and measured by it. But to apply something to someone who is rational means to promulgate it, that is to make it known to them and thus promulgate it. So that's why we have our definition. All right, if that's what it is for anything to be law, according to Thomas, what is it for something to be natural law? It might be helpful at first to remind ourselves what natural law is not on this view. It's not, for those of us living after the 17th century, it's hard to remind ourselves, it's not the laws of nature that one would read about in the scientific revolution uh, from the 17th century forward. It's not, in other words, a description of the regular repeated behavior of natural objects of which one natural object is a human being. So that's not what's intended here by natural law. Rather, for Thomas, natural law is, he says, nothing other than, it's his favorite phrase in his treatise on law, nihil aliud est quam. It's nothing other than the participation in the eternal law in a rational creature. So what's eternal law? Briefly, eternal law is, if you will, the very intelligibility of God's pattern of governance of things, which Thomas clarifies to be nothing other than the divine nature itself. The universe is governed and patterned off of God's own nature. Now, Thomas tells us that all created things participate in the, act, in the eternal law, which is his way of saying that all things in their very and particular mode of being in their mode of acting, in their way of coming to their ends and their proper flourishing, are all said to have a share in the ratio or logos that is God himself. Or, as Thomas will say, all things take part in some respect, al equaliter, in the eternal law, inasmuch, namely, as they have from an impression of it on them inclinations towards their proper acts and ends. Now, just to be clear, a Thomistic inclination need not be a conscious or felt desire. In fact, that's really not what he has in mind at all. He's not talking about someone who says, but I feel like eating donuts every morning. That's not an inclinatio that Thomas is talking about. That's something more like a desire and probably a wicked one. Um, a stone, as far as Thomas is concerned, can have an inclination if you're in Aristotelian physics, to go down. That's what stones are inclined to do, to go to the center of the world. And an eye has an inclination to see, right? So what you're talking about here by inclinations is the directedness of things to come to their full flourishing as what they are. So every kind of thing participates then in the eternal law according to the kind of thing that it is, or said differently, participation in the eternal law directs us to what the thing is and in what it finds its end 
and how it comes to that end being the kind of thing that it is. So the law that we're talking about is rooted in the nature of things and entails their teleology. Human beings, then, have a particular mode of participating in the eternal law, as every creature does, and the human way of doing that is as rational animals, which is what they are, their nature. And it is this participation of rational animals in the larger divine governance of the world that we call natural law. That's why we had to rehearse all of this to see the larger pattern. We don't, we can't understand what Thomas wants us to hear about the natural law without thinking about the particular mode in which something exists, its nature, and the end to which that, that nature is directed and the means that that nature has according to its own nature to arrive at that end. Because we are rational animals, the natural law will be a knowing way, a rational way, so a knowing way of coming to one's end, one that makes use of human reason, and in particular, practical reason, namely reason by which we know about what we need to do. And so we can grasp ends and grasp them as good, and we can grasp what we need to do to arrive at that end, that is to say, determining means. But while it's about knowing, it's not exhausted by knowing because the natural law attends to the whole nature of the human being. So while the human way of coming to the human end in God is a knowing way, it has to take into account that human beings are living sensitive substances. Now, just as speculative reason begins from first principles from which subsequent principles are derived and conclusions may then be drawn, so too with practical reason. That is, the operative idea in natural law is that the natural light of reason is able, when attending to experience, more on that in just a moment, when attending to experience, it can grasp the first and most fundamental principle of natural law which in this case is that the good is what is to be pursued. Now, I want to add here on the side, it will be more relevant later, that experience in Thomas doesn't mean a single event. Like I had, I had a great experience last night, and you said that that's not what is intended here. Experience is meant by the repeated sensory encounter with the world in a certain way, which then prepared by the internal senses reaches a point internally that it can be made intelligible to the person just then by considering it directly. So experience for Aristotle and Thomas is in agreement here, is not a momentary thing. It is something that takes a certain amount of time and it requires various powers, particularly sensitive powers, in order to be fully operative. To grasp the meaning of the world means to have at least first encountered it in a sensory way for human beings. Now, um, from this first principle of natural law, that the good is what is to be pursued, we can see immediately the first precept of natural law. Well, there's precepts because they're telling us what to do. The good is to be pursued and the evil shunned. Now, this principle and this precept might seem vacuous at first. And uh, because it's, well, sure, why not? And that is part of Thomas's point, right? It's obvious. It's not vacuous, he thinks, but it is obvious, and this is his idea, that all people just see that to be so. 
because all people, when they're pursuing what they're pursuing, do it under some description to them as good. And when they try to avoid something, it's because that thing they're avoiding under some description to them is evil or bad. But one of the ways to get any more content in this is, of course, considering this first principle in light of human nature as a living substance, as an animal, and as rational. And from those three considerations, we can know at least the most basic precepts of the natural law founded on the first precept. As substances, we have an inclination to continue in existence. And thus, those precepts that touch fundamentally on self-preservation, preserving of our and preserving and maintaining our life fall in that sense of considering our nature. As animals, Thomas focuses on the fact of, put typically Thomistically chastely, the joining of male and female uh, and the concomitant raising of children. And then he just says, and other such things, right? So, so heavily part of his idea is that grasping that we're animal leads us relatively quickly, we'll talk about this again in a moment, to see that their part of the natural law has to do with the coming together of men and women to have children and then raise them. As rational, he thinks that our natural inclinations direct us to having precepts about knowing the truth about God and about what pertains to living in society. And so it would entail at this most basic and common level an obligation to avoid ignorance and, this is a lovely idea, not to trouble those with whom we live. And those of us who live in community might appreciate that this is a precept of the natural law. So whether we always attend to it is another question. Now, to be sure, all of this seems quite remote from any concrete activity. And of course, all activity is in the end lived in the concrete. And it is indeed remote from any concrete activity and that for two main reasons. The first has to do with how it is that we come to the knowledge of the precepts of the natural law. And the second touches upon what I want to call the unavoidable incompleteness of the natural law in a total account of human acting. So let's consider the first of these, namely how it is that we arrive at our knowledge of the precepts of natural law. As we noted above, the first principle of practical reason is drawn from our experience of the world and seems to be with us already by the moment we're conscious of anything going on in any certainly rational way. It is not, in other words, for Thomas, something innate, some principle that just happens to be in us and structures the way we see the world but might or might not be true, nor is it merely something that's asserted that is simply a given that says, let's take it to be the case that good is what is pursued. But rather, it is just seen to be true immediately when considering our experience. Remember again what he means by experience as a cumulative thing. So even as this is on Thomas's view, this is parallel to the way that we grasp the first principle of speculative reason, namely that nothing can both be and not be at the same time in the same respect. Uh, that, too, he says, comes from a consideration of experience, but comes to us immediately, not argued for, but just seen to be true. From this first principle, Thomas asserts that we can, as he says, immediately, but with a little consideration, 
satim kumodika consideratione. With that, we can grasp what he calls the common and first principles of natural law. Now, Thomas takes these, these other principles to be known equally to all. So much so, he thinks, that these, these principles, these precepts, cannot be erased from the human heart as such. Although, it should be noted here that as regards the application, even of these common and universally known principles to some particular act in the concrete, Thomas thinks that reason can be impeded, he says, due to concupiscence or other passions. But the idea that Thomas seems to have here is that you wouldn't fail to know what you're obliged to do. That is, um, it's not as though you, you simply don't realize what these first principles are in any sense. And it seems to be that if you were not grasped in that passion and you were attentive to things, you would just see the truth of these first principles, as he says, with only a little bit of thinking about it. But rather, his idea seems to be that due to your passion, you choose, perhaps not making that choice known to yourself, but you choose to attend to the passion rather than to think about the things you otherwise know. This is, which I will not get into here, but it may be part of a conversation, what Thomas will identify as the grave sin of folly, when things are known to you, but you just choose not to attend to them. Yet while these common, or as also called most common principles, may be obvious in the sense that they're grasped directly once you attend to them, not all principles and precepts of the natural law are of this sort. Indeed, one suspects, and I think this is right on Thomas's view, that much that has been asserted to be grounded in natural law is not of the common sort, but the sort that he will call the secondary precepts. The secondary precepts, according to Thomas, are, as he will call them, quasi-conclusiones. They're something like conclusions and speculative reasoning, um, and thus they flow from, but are not immediately obvious in the first principles themselves. These secondary principles then are not immediately known, nor even with just a little thought, like the first and common ones are, but only, he says, through the diligent investigation of the wise. We may figure out if we are they. And like the conclusions of other sciences, these conclusions are delivered to those who are not among the wise, or at least who are less wise, through teaching. And even this does not render what has been taught thus to be easily known and grasped by those who are not counted among the wise. It's important to remember that feature about teaching. One can communicate something, but if the person receiving it has a less sharp capacity for understanding, they won't grasp it as well as the person who taught it. And so they may know its content, but might not themselves see as easily how it derives from the other principles that they do know more clearly. In fact, says Thomas, even for the wise, there's a difficulty that is caused, which uh, is caused in, in knowing the precepts in all of their details, because we can't easily anticipate the innumerable actual or potential circumstances that will attend concrete particular acts. 
One example he gives, we can have a principle that you ought to return what has been loaned to you. That's something which you can get to as a, as a precept of the natural law. But that what, what happens in the case that someone wants to get their gun back and you know that they want to start an armed revolution against the state? Right. And so you have to that wouldn't have first been thought through. You might. Oh, I didn't I didn't even think of that case when I was thinking of the obligation to return what has been loaned. And therefore, there must be some more concrete version of that precept that that handles in more detail with a death by a thousand qualifications. Um, what then is still binding on all persons or maybe not binding on all persons? So this is a difficulty that attends on Thomas's view, even to the wise, that particular acts, we can consider them subtly, but they're so varied and the circumstances so competing that the evaluations may turn out to be themselves competing and incompatible, not because one of the two isn't true, but it's not immediately obvious, even to the wise, how to resolve the disagreement. And so this is to be, I think, uh, distinguished from a case where it becomes easily or more readily obvious to the wise that they're differing, say, about means to an end, which should be more relatively easy to resolve. But when they're just not sure what the precepts are, it's more difficult. So taking do the good and avoid the evil as the first precept of natural law, Thomas holds that um, would hold that such precepts as honor your father and mother, or thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not steal, as the kinds of precepts that are readily seen to be true, although a little bit just below about the problem with even these in the case of stealing. Uh, while a precept like one that I love, rise up before the hoary head, which you clearly do not follow that precept because you're all seated, rise up before the hoary head and honor the person of the aged man, um, is, he says, the sort of precept, that's from Leviticus, the sort of precept that would only be judged by the wise, although it could be taught by those who are, to those who are less wise. These secondary precepts, unlike the more common ones, are then subject to a more precarious fortune. In part, this is because they must be considered carefully by the wise, and even the wise, as Thomas will note here and elsewhere, can make mistakes in their reasoning. They must also be communicated by way of teaching to those who are less wise, which itself raises the complications that come from the act of teaching and the act of learning, and thus the skill of the teacher in presenting the material, the aptness of those being taught to learn, the existence or lack thereof of institutions through which this teaching can be preserved and passed on and reconsidered or even improved, and of the cultural practices and products we might think of things, poetry, art, and such, that embody these insights so that they can be grasped experientially by the community as a whole, even those who are less wise. Now, this latter point touches on an important theme raised by Jacques Maritain in his consideration of the natural law in his work, Man and the State. There, Maritain states that much of this quasi-concluding character of practical reason of the natural law, uh, he says, when we are thinking about that, we need to attend to the fact that it's not like syllogistic reason, reasoning. That's not the way we come to know the principles of natural law, but it merely comes through the inclinations of human nature. Now, even if with Gregory Doolin, we take Maritain's account of inclinations to be somewhat faulty, 
I think I can agree with Maritain uh, regarding the cultural and contextual and indeed historical character of the realization and transmission of the secondary principles and precepts of natural law. You know, Maritain might uh, even suggest that some of these, this historical character might touch on those traditions that are, or rather those principles that are more common. The secondary principles, excuse me, precepts of the natural law, in other words, are not to be taken as a fixed set of laws already known in all detail and not subject to further revision and precision, as we might well take the insights um, of the past few centuries touching on human dignity to be evidence of that. Right? Human dignity, rightly understood human autonomy, seem to be real advances in our understanding of the natural law in a way they wouldn't have been understood in those terms in the 13th century. Moreover, there are crucial moral conditions that impede the ability to grasp the precepts of this secondary sort. So there's the intellectual problems that are built in, even if everyone's doing their job properly, that, are, that make it hard to get to these. But there's also moral problems that will impede our grasping of these secondary precepts, which indeed, says Thomas, can be blotted out from the hearts of men. An evil character, he says, can derail, which can also derail speculative reasoning, can produce errors in moral reasoning, as can wicked customs and corrupt habits. And with regard to the latter, the customs and the habits, while it's certainly the case that Thomas could have in mind individual faults, his primary example of this case appeals to a claim made by Julius Caesar that among the Germans, theft was not seen to be evil. Whatever the truth of Caesar's account, and Caesar is notoriously bad in, in his ethnography, um, Thomas, in, in approving the story, is therefore clearly talking about collective kinds of wicked habits and customs, things that are imbued in the cultural practices of a society with the result that people in that society are just blind to things that in principle they could know by reason, but in fact won't see until those customs are altered. And this example is complicated by the fact, I think, that Thomas also considers the moral prohibition against theft to be one of those principles that are immediately known, right? He's just been saying this is an example of how secondary precepts can go wrong. And then he appeals to a precept that later, when he's dealing with the Decalogue, he says, in fact, is one of those earlier precepts. I want to uh, jump forward just a little for the case of sake of time. So we've got this sort of moral, moral problems in acquiring the natural law. I want to touch briefly then on what I want to, want to call the incompleteness of the natural law. One of the reasons I think deriving the principle, principles of natural law is difficult for us is that the natural law is never, on Thomas's theory, intended to be the complete account of human action, even as regards law. Certainly, from a theological point of view, which I will leave more to the theologians, there is the divine law, which is decreed for those things that we couldn't know by reason alone. But it's also true that human law, although derived from natural law, is necessary for concretizing what the law is, Right, Just as the way we might say the fact that we have eyes and hands lets us make things like clothes and houses, but we have to figure out how to do those and what ways work and what ways are conducive to human flourishing in houses and with clothing. And that comes out of the same thing that human law does. Human law is also, and this is important, 
necessary for cultivating the virtue of the people who will then be able to see the precepts of the natural law more readily. So the natural law known in itself is has a hard time of getting you to see and follow it. Human law, which applies it to you in concrete ways, enables you to, if you're bad, be restrained and learn how to be good. And if you're good, to learn how to be better. Finally, and this is what I want to touch on as a kind of caution, and perhaps to anticipate a little what, what we might hear later in this weekend. Uh, Thomas, when he's commenting on Romans 2, 14 to 15, for those of you who don't remember, um, for when the Gentiles who have not the law do by nature those things that are of the law, these having not the law are a law to themselves, who show the work of their law in their hearts. We might be tempted to think that what this is trying to say is merely by knowledge of the natural law, by natural powers alone, the Gentiles did what they're supposed to do. That is not, in fact, Thomas's reading of this passage. Thomas says here that, in fact, what's at stake here is not the Gentiles apart from Revelation Christ, but quite rather, he means those Gentiles who have been converted to the faith with the help of the grace of Christ and thus can keep the moral law. And he says it may, he says, or it might mean that they see through the natural law what is to be done but that he sees merely as doing what the Torah does, the law, which is give them knowledge of sin, which nonetheless needs grace to move them to act. So I raise this last point um, uh, with, with one final point, and then I'll conclude. The, um, in the consideration of the moral features of the old law, Thomas is less sanguine about how easily people can know the moral law. He says, why did, why did these precept, precepts of the natural law need to be in the old law at all? And he says, because most people don't follow them, or at least many don't. He said, many people regard things that are evil in themselves to be licit, right? So that while we might see, if we just look at the treatise in the law, that Thomas is a theory that if we're just trying hard enough, we'll, we'll get to the precepts of natural law. Thomas actually holds that that's not generally the case for the human situation. So I'll close then with, with noting that um, uh, I think this is, a, if you will, a warning. A warning here because the very Thomistic doctrine of natural law explains how without real effort, without a meaningful way to teach and communicate the fruits of that effort, without laws or at least institutions and cultural practices that live out the precepts and cultivate the virtues that enable the ready grasp of those principles, then the assurance of this hard-won tradition of natural law and its insight might not be so secure. But I also think this is an encouragement because this sort of effort to produce such practices, to produce such laws, because they arise out of the very inclinations of human nature, will in the end attract even those who are not yet ready to assert their truth.